The Physician's Road. Create your life in medicine, on your own terms. Today, we are on the path to wealth. Today, on The Physician's Road podcast, we're talking about venture capital, but with a twist. Venture capital as a service model, as well as pre-IPO investing, and how this differs from the typical venture capital investment firm. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss this episode. The Physician's Road is brought to you by Vernonville Asset Management. Vernonville Asset Management was created to help physicians build wealth and create income beyond Wall Street. Through our exclusive private investments, doctors can begin to free themselves from the burdensome regulations in healthcare by creating income streams independent of medicine. Go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get your free report, Wall Street's Biggest Lie. Again, go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get Wall Street's Biggest Lie and free your today. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Eric Tate uh, from the Physicians Road podcast. And today we're on the path to wealth. And I'm so happy to have uh, Leah Edwards from Pegasus Tech Ventures with us today to talk about a different world uh, in the uh, venture capital um, side. We had a we had a more typical venture capital capitalist about a year ago. Today, we're going to talk about kind of new innovations that are going on in the venture space and kind of venture capital on a global scale, as well as talking a little bit about kind of pre-IPO funds and what those are um, from that standpoint. And so without further ado, I'd like to welcome Leah Edwards. And if you can talk to us a little bit about kind of yourself and your background, and then also give us some, some information about Pegasus Tech Ventures and kind of the company itself. Oh, well, thank you, Eric. It's really nice to have this chance to talk with you. As you said, my name is Leah Edwards, and I'm a partner with Pegasus Tech Ventures. And we're a little bit of an unusual model um, as you're talking about innovation in the venture space continues. We are about 10 years old, and we have been partnering with global corporations to help them with their venture investing. We specifically help them with their open innovation, meaning they're investing in companies that they believe can help them with the new technology development, with product development, with potentially doing joint ventures in other countries, you know, cooperation that is mutually beneficial to the startups and the corporations. So we've been doing that for about 10 years. And we also have some funds that will discuss later that are open to other investors and are not specifically for each of these corporations. Okay, perfect. And so we're going to circle back to the kind of the venture capital as a service model for these corporates. Um, But tell us how you got started kind of in the venture space. Well, it's actually been fairly recent for me that I I joined Pegasus less than years ago, I had been a serial co-founder of startups, mostly software companies, um, but I've, I've helped other founders get their companies going, particularly in the renewable energy and other sustainability-oriented space, as well as in ed tech. Um, but I just also look for ways to support entrepreneurs every way I can. I am also a lecturer at both Stanford and UC Berkeley teaching innovation skills, team management, and other soft skills to help people bring technology into the market. So it was just a sort of natural evolution to um, help bring the capital to specific high potential teams by joining Pegasus. Perfect. Um, I always I always make the joke that 
the most important things I learned in business school were actually the soft skills and not the technical skills. You can always hire technical skills. Um, it sounds like that's something that you're doing and, and, and lecturing on in your world these days. Yes, I agree. I have a passion for helping people avoid unnecessary conflict and to help them um, keep their teams together, keep their teams feeling successful and enjoying work, let alone, you know, having incredible efficiency. You really can get a product developer, get a technology out into the market in, say, half the time if you have good processes, good team cohesion, less turnover. And these issues are just extraordinarily important for early stage companies that are dealing with so many degrees of uncertainty and so many challenges that you want to have a very high performing team to deal with all that. Got it. And and we're going to go a little bit on a tangent still in your space. And so as a woman co-founder, one, that's rare. And you're a multiple co-founder too. Now you're a partner in a venture firm as, as a woman, rare again. Tell us how, tell us your journey and kind of how that, how you, how you've been moving in those spaces as a woman and, and how you, as you've seen the evolution of your time as a co-founder now moving into the, as a partner at a VC firm. Well, there definitely are issues. Um, you know, you can just look at the data at how few women are partners or actual investment partners in venture capital funds. You can see that during the pandemic, there was even a reduction in the amount of venture capital dollars that went to women founded companies. You know, we, we have a significant problem. And it's quite ironic because there's a lot of academic studies that show that women, you know, companies that have women on the boards, companies that have women on the management teams outperform the companies that don't. And there's also a lot of academic research proving that diversity actually creates higher value products. You know, you get a lot better ideas, you get a lot better strategies for markets to go after, for marketing communications. The, the diversity actually increases the potential of startups and the business results. So we have this irony and I, you know, written some articles on it, trying to help people um, get over this hump because it actually is in the interest of men to also be concerned about this issue. This is not just a women's issue. So, you know, for me personally, uh, it's hard on a micro scale to feel the that tremendous um I mean, obviously there's a bias. I mean, it's hard to feel that every day because of course I'm working with people that welcome me in. I'm working with people that are valuing my opinion. Um, so you have to sort of both try to succeed in your own individual uh, career, but also try to look out for the bigger picture and try to help communicate around and to create the change. Um, you know, I'll stop there, but I we can talk a little bit more about what I've experienced in, in terms of trying create the change, you know, on teams that I've been on, because maybe that's the level we have some ability to make adjustments. And that's actually where, where I was going to go next. Um, and if you can, um, what I'll do is I'll put the link to your articles that you've written in the show notes. So just, you can just email them to me and I'll put them in the show notes so people can, can reference them. And so I want you to toot your own horn now that you've come to Pegasus. What do you think 
and again, don't be modest. What what have you brought to Pegasus that may have not that Pegasus wasn't successful in doing what they were doing, but what was your unique thing that you brought to Pegasus? If you want to talk about it around the teams, kind of awareness, kind of but I want you to toot your own horn. Oh, well, thank you. Well, um, you know, one of the things I have is is years of experience. I was on my first venture-backed team, uh, Moore David Al backed the company that I helped co-found called Post Communications back in 1997. Mm-hmm. So I have been working in the tech ecosystem for a long time and having both gone to both of the schools I mentioned and teaching at these schools, that increases my network. Having worked with so many founders, either directly being on the teams or being a mentor, an advisor, an angel investor to them, I have a broad network. And so this matters in venture. You you need to find you know, the broadest source of deals to look at. And then if there's a very popular deal, which happens very much in our later stage investing strategies that we're currently working on, it's not easy to get an allocation into those deals. So you actually have to have relationships. You have to be able to get into conversations to show the value out of your firm. And so I bring that network after all of this experience. Perfect. And so just for those of you who are listening, allocation is just a portion of an investment round. So a lot of these very um, popular uh, invest investment companies that are being invested in, they're oversubscribed, meaning there are more. There's more money than they can get than shares for them to give out. And so getting an allocation, meaning you, you're getting a piece of that company, and you can put your money in. What people don't often realize is money is not as important in the venture space as getting the access to the deals. Lots of people have money, but if you don't have the relationships um, that Leah just talked about, you can have all the money in the world. You're still not going to get into some of what we call the hottest deals that are out there. And would that be fair to say? Yes, that's really true, especially in the later stages. I mean, it can happen um, in early stage startups, particularly if the early stage startup is being founded by a team that has previously had success as startup founders, then sometimes those early stage deals are also quite competitive to get into. But definitely the later stage, because obviously those companies have proven to be successful. They've um, de-risked the company in a lot of ways by um, building market share, getting customers. And so those deals right now tend to be very, very competitive. Very much so. And so in in talking about Focusing back on Pegasus Tech Ventures, um, it sounds like I've heard at least two strategic kind of points that you all are talking about, kind of the corporate side, which we'll get into, and then the later stage. Are there any other kind of silos that Pegasus really focuses on, or would be those the two major branches that Pegasus looks at? Well, those are our two um, investments. Strategies. We also are the producer, though, of the Startup World Cup, which is a global competition that rolls up regional competitions from around the world and creates really visibility for the fact that innovation is happening everywhere in the world. So that would be our third branch, but that's not an investing uh, strategy. Got it. And so the Startup World Cup, um, how do do outside non-investors participate in that? Or is that something the audience can tune into? Is that a closed system? Like, what is it exactly? 
Well, the regional competition happen all year long. Um, and during the pandemic, of course, many of them have been made virtual. So if you go to the Startup World Cup website, which we can also put in the show notes, absolutely, um, it is possible to stream the competitions all around the world. And that just been fascinating uh, to see in the last year and a half. Um, and then the we also will be streaming the the final, the actual World Cup in September 2022. We will also um, be be streaming that. If anyone can make it to San Francisco, there will be a live audience as well. So hopefully travel will be really opened up at that point. Got it. Perfect. And so now let's talk about the two investable branches of Pegasus. So let's start back with the corporate side, almost, yeah, almost like a studio model, which I'll let you explain further. Um, can you go and explain, let's talk about a closed deal, something that's happened way in the past, so no one thinks that you're soliciting, um, of how you solve the particular corporate problem or help to solve a particular corporate problem kind of full cycle. Do you have an example that you can give to the audience so they can understand it in a, in a more full way? Yes. Well, um, sometimes we are introduced a startup company that has a very specific technology, maybe a particular sensor, you know, something that could be uh, sort of almost a you know, component to a product for one of our companies. But we also sometimes introduce startups that have a fully functional product that is not introduce, say, to the geography that is the primary focus of one of the corporates. So, for example, we invested in a company called Osaro, which has a robotics learning technology that helps robots learn uh, to function better when there are, you know, decisions needed to be made. It can't just be programmed into a static, repeated uh, sort of path for the robot. And so we introduced Osaro to one of our Japanese um, corporate partners, and they were able to set up a joint venture. And so this really helped Osaro accelerate sales tremendously, go into markets that they would never have been able to go into uh, so quickly. And at a being a fairly early stage company. So this was a win-win for both the corporate and the startup. Got it. And just so I'm clear in my own mind, and, and maybe this, just so I'm clear. So in some ways, you're almost acting as a marketplace. So on one side, you have corporates that you all work with. On the other side, you have technology companies that have products and services. And in many ways, you sit in between and help to match those back and forth. Yeah. Um, for to to problems that the corporates have versus versus technologies that the that the individual companies may have. Yes, yes, we um, are pretty unique in this venture capital as a service model. But you are right that it is not just a service to our corporate partners; it is also a service to these startups. All startups need capital, but if they can get capital combined with this, you know, very strategic, you know, high touch uh, collaboration with a corporation in the industries that they want to go after. It is a real, really an accelerant to their progress. So we are looking like you are 
you're using great terminology to be that matchmaker to bring them together. Got it. And I think it's just easier conceptually for the audience to, to understand um, from that standpoint, what's actually happening. So your clients in many ways are the corporates as well as the, the companies that you're investing in from that standpoint. Now, in your own words, can you talk about how that is different than typical venture capital uh, companies? Well, uh, the original venture capital model were wealthy individuals pooling their money to make investments in very risky startups that could not get bank funding to launch. And that model is still the primary model where there's wealthy individuals as well as, say, pension funds and endowments of universities putting money into what we would maybe call financially based venture capital funds. That's the most common model. It Then there was a development for corporate venture funds, and those had two models. One were pooled, say three or four corporations being the limited partner, so being the capital going into a venture capital fund, or one corporation starting their own venture capital fund specifically to source deals that are of strategic interest to that corporation and also to pursue the high rates of return that you would want to go after in a in a venture capital model so that is complicated though because you're taking a corporation who's very very skilled at producing products or services in particular industries and then asking them to also be experts at being a venture capital investor and that can happen. It's not always the strength, though, of the corporation. So it, and it's quite an investment for them to make to hire a whole team and do the back office about the venture capital model. And it's also a little problematic for those corporations when they maybe change strategies three or four years later, which happens. Corporations change strategies quite often. By their nature, venture capital investments are for the long term. If you're investing in a really early stage company, they may not really mature. They may not actually have what we would call an exit, meaning get acquired or have an initial public offering until 10 years later. So you've created a corporation that wants to be able to be agile and change their strategies to say, but you also have to stay supportive of venture capital investments you made maybe for 10 years. So it's just, the, it's, it's been an awkward model. It's also been an awkward model in those types of funds where multiple corporations are investing in the same fund and then the same startups. And then one of those corporations wants something particular from a startup in the portfolio, but they're the Startups are not necessarily beholden to the interest of one of those corporations. This has also been awkward in the open innovation goals of the corporations. So Pegasus um, really looked at these issues and said, let's try to fix this. Like there is such an incredible value to startups to have these relationships with corporations. But this model is just little bit um, awkward. So let's let's fix it. And so our 
strategy was to have unique funds for each corporate. So we are operating 30 funds right now. Each corporation has their own fund. We have what we call investment relation managers working directly with them to understand their strategies and what kinds of startups would be of interest to them. We have dedicated investment managers sourcing deals specifically for those strategies. And so when we are creating the, you know, the relationship with the startups, we can start from the get-go. While we're still evaluating an investment opportunity in a company, we can also be starting the conversations about what the collaboration will be, what the strategic project might be. So we have really fixed this uh, sort of alignment problem. And, um, you know, you might ask, why didn't other companies, you know, other venture funds do this first? Why, why were we the first? And one of the reasons is, this is pretty expensive to do. You have to be willing to have a very large team. We have 20 25 corporate funds right now. So we have a whole team of investment relation managers. We have a whole team of the actual investment managers sourcing deals. So, and then we have what you call the back office. Those are the people producing reports for all the corporations every quarter. It, it's just a, a highly complex operation. And so it's just a strategy we wanted to go after when we were willing to build up a fairly large team and, and deal with the complexity, but it's it's not typical of how a venture fund would normally operate. Got it. And so just from a recap standpoint, so I'm clear, make sure I understand. So in many ways, you're almost an outsourced CVC or corporate venture capital group for these corporations. So they don't have to build it internally. They can yeah. stay on their core competency of selling whatever widget they sell. And then basically they're outsourcing their their venture capital arm to you guys. Would that be a fair assessment? Yes, yes. We um we work with very giant um corporations. So many of them have additional venture capital activities as well, but we work with teams within the company that want to use venture capital as a strategy to really build build out certain business ideas. And, you know, one of the differences between just being outsourced, you know, trying to maybe be a customer of startups is startups really, really always need capital. If you want to get a startup's attention, have capital to offer. And so this is a win-win for maybe a corporation trying to get access to a certain, uh, you know, new material or new device or maybe business model and also get what they need, which is cash. Sometimes the cash is immediate and the potential collaboration may not happen for two years until the startups may be ready to go into other markets and things. So we we solve the problem is that timing is not always aligned. The companies that are of most interest to corporations are not always raising a financing round at the moment, or a startup that might be interesting might be raising a round right now, but 
the corporation may not be able to get their attention about some type of foreign market expansion for a while, but we, we sort of seal that potential relationship by helping to make the investment now. And then the actual business activity can happen at another time. So we're solving a lot of the um, sort of disjointed issues that uh, often hampered corporations doing um, open innovation or doing their own corporate venture funds on their own. Got it. And some questions along those lines. Do your corporates often end up buying or acquiring these companies? It can happen. Um, is it common or is, is it, is it kind of yeah, one-offs? That tend to I would, yeah, I would say this is not common. Um, what, what most... One of the things that's also uh, maybe worth noting is one of the reasons you you benefit when you, if you're a corporation, you benefit by working with us is that we are very focused on being a successful venture capital fund. We are, we are seeking the highest possible returns. And so letting a startup have its own high potential path, which might be one day an IPO, or might be to be acquired by someone else in their industry versus a potential customer user, which the corporation might better be defined as. Um, The outcome for the startup, the financial outcome might be better for them to remain independent. And usually then that helps the alignment that the startups and the other investors are not afraid to have the startup work with a corporation because they, which I would say other investors might be reluctant to have corporates be involved because they don't want an early acquisition by a corporate that cuts off that potential return. But knowing that we are going after the highest possible return while facilitating business relationships is the win-win for everyone. And so it it's not very common. I mean, it can happen if that's appropriate and that is the highest uh, potential financial outcome one day, but but that isn't common. Got it. And so you so Pegasus almost sits as an honest broker looking for the highest kind of highest off-ramp, whatever that may be, so that non-corporate investors feel comfortable also allocating money. Yes, yes. Got it. And the next question, you talked about your 30 business units that are for the corporates. Do you have companies that work with, do you have startups that are being invested that work across multiple companies kind of in the same industry, or do you silo them off um, in some way? Most often, I mean, very much almost all the time, it's a one-to-one relationship. So we are sourcing deals specific for one corporation and, and creating that relationship. That isn't always true. There is. There are times, say, if a startup is is more, you know, further along on their track, they're raising a fairly large round. It might be appropriate that we have multiple corporates that would be interest interested, but but that isn't typical of of the way we work. We do have a growth fund and a pre IPO fund, which are pooling money from many different investors, and so. That happens more when it's a fund that is going after venture, you know, financial returns as opposed to that strategic relationship. 
Got it. And that's a perfect segue to where we're going to pivot to is this pre-IPO fund. Um, what is that exactly? Now, not necessarily what Pegasus does, but what is it as an industry um, that that would be recognizable for people? Um, yeah, when you talk about it. Well, so a pre-IPO fund is um, being very optimistic with that title of a category. So, of course, no one knows for sure which companies are actually going to make it into a public company. But when you say you have a pre-IPO fund, that means you're going after companies that you expect would either have a major, major acquisition, um, you know, for, for, you know, unicorn level uh, dollars, so over a billion dollar valuation, or that the company will go public in, onto one of the major stock exchanges. So for Pegasus, when, in our fund, we are looking for companies that we are confident will have the opportunity to go public within three years and probably much sooner. And there are certain indications. I mean, usually when a company is raising their final round before they expect to go public, they're stating that. They're saying, this is our final round. We are actually already talking to investment bankers um, about what it will take to go public within two years. And we are raising this last bit of private capital so that we can uh, do our last expansion, show you know tremendous growth before um, attempting to go out on the public market. So it's not it's not just wishing. There's lots of strong indicators uh, that the companies that we would be uh, and other people with pre-IPO strategies would be looking at that give you pretty high confidence that they will have that opportunity. Got it. And are there any specific designations that an in- investor would be listening out for? Um, whether it's ser- whether it's letter number letters in the in the funding round, and I know different companies will get to different letters depending on the number of rounds. Are there specific things an investor could be listening for to know that the company is headed that way? Well, you definitely just mentioned the letters, and we probably should say for listeners in case they're not used to this that. Uh, you know, a Series A round used to be the first venture capital round that a company had. And every time they went back out to the venture capital market to raise their next round, it would just accelerate the letter. Um, Just as a side note, there have now been all kinds of additional rounds added before A. We now have pre-seed rounds and seed Seed rounds. And yeah, it's, it's, there's definitely been a proliferation of, um, I don't know how much we want to go into the weeds. No, this this is called the bastardization (laughs) of the funding process. Is there bridge rounds and bridge A? And that's why I was going to say, is there any specific thing? Are there any monikers towards the end that someone can Yeah, the end, (laughs) yes. The end would be going into the alphabet more. If you see a series D and E and F, you're definitely looking late stage companies. It was really interesting if you look at, say, SpaceX and some of these extraordinarily highly capitalized companies, they are going very far into the alphabet while they're staying uh, private companies. And so, uh, you know, but the higher level means they're later stage. Got it. I'm going to ask a very random question. You can say you don't know if you don't know, but I just thought about it as we were sitting there. 
SpaceX and those kind of companies that are super household names, people are already using their products, can go very deep into the alphabet. Are there rounds that people that maybe not be that may not be household names, but are there rounds at which you're worried about whether or not this company is even going to survive, or is that not something you, that is even tracked or even thought about? Oh well, you know, we and any any venture capital investor invests in extraordinarily few companies relative to the number of companies we look at. Mm -hmm. So we are definitely seeing companies at all times that we are not comfortable that they are either going to be able to make it to the public market or that won't sustain their stock price. So for example, if you invest in a company now and they go public, hopefully for a higher dollar value than the value of the company at the point you invested, if there is a lockup period, which happens often, private investors are not allowed to sell their shares the day the company goes public. You could imagine what would happen to the stock price. It would absolutely tank the day after the company went public because you, anybody could sell immediately on the private market. So the private investors have a lockup period after a company goes out onto the public market. And so it, the value of the company could float down over time. And at the point you actually can sell your shares on the public market, it might be lower value than you paid uh, to invest in the round prior to the public offering. So you have to really have conviction that the company is going to to be able to support the valuation on the public market. And the public markets are very um, tough on companies. I mean, look at any company that reports their quarterly earnings and have a drop in profits or something, the stock price immediately reacts. So, or, or, um, or aren't growing as fast as people expected. So they're growing, but not as fast as people want them to grow. Yeah. So you have to really um, do a lot of analysis when the interesting thing about doing a pre-IPO investment strategy is that we have a lot more tools available to us than early stage companies, a lot more information available to us. You can do more comparisons of other companies, say that did go public. You can um, have a lot more financial data to analyze and a lot more um, just information and activities of the companies to dive into, pretty similar to the way com public companies are able to be evaluated. So, um, you know, again, we we have to have strong conviction that the company is going to continue to grow very fast and would be supported by the public markets in retaining the public market price that they go out with on the first day. Got it. And then some people see kind of secondary market shares that I guess the 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 employees of the company who've been there for a long time are able to sell before the company goes public. Um, does that factor into kind of what you guys are doing? Is that a separate thing? Can you kind of explain uh, to people kind of that process? Absolutely. That's a very important strategy for us. So for us, our strategy is actually to have extraordinarily high diversification in our pre-IPO fund. We're um, trying to invest in up to 40 companies in our fund. And so we're making 
bear at this stage, what are, even though these are in millions of dollar increments, these are um, fairly modest investments. And one of the ways we're able to do that is by buying secondary shares. And secondary shares happen for a whole lot of reasons. As I was mentioning, startup companies tend to stay private for 10 years or more. And it's been happening that some startup companies are staying private even much longer than that because they can keep raising significant capital in these higher alphabet level <laughs> venture rounds. And uh, But you can imagine a couple of things. One, if you're an early stage employee that took a below market rate cash salary for the opportunity to have an equity component of your compensation, you've been waiting a very long time for that equity to become public shares that you could sell and turn into cash. And maybe you would like to buy another house. Maybe you would like to um, take your family on a vacation and you've been earning you know, somewhat modest cash salary relative to what you might've made in say a corporate job or something. So um, early employees sometimes wanna sell a small component of their shares. It can also happen that earlier venture funds want to sell their shares. So the life of the venture fund is typically 10 years. If portfolio companies in that venture fund have not gone public or gotten acquired within those 10 years, but are still growing, are still super high potential, high value companies, sometimes the the venture funds want to close down that particular fund. So they want to sell their, um, you know, they're going to get profits, you know, relative to them investing in a 10-year prior valuation to what this very high potential company is at now, they can lock in very significant profits now, which might be completely fine, even if there's more profits yet to come, because they want to close down that fund. This, This fund is not one they're focused on right now. Maybe the partnership has even dissolved for that particular venture fund. So that's another reason that secondary shares are available. And it's the fact that somebody wants to sell them is not a negative indication about the potential for the that underlying startup. Got it. And so the and so in that particular case, the venture company is selling the shares at the last valuation, last priced valuation round. Um, is that what tends to happen? Well, right now we're in a very, very hot market. So that can happen, but it can also happen that it's even a premium to the last. It you know sort of depends on when was the last round, how has the company been doing. But we were talking earlier about this is a very interesting market where there are a lot of investors that would like exposure to venture capital as, as a you know, probably small percentage of their overall portfolio, but um, but one of the strategies they would like to pursue. So there are lots of people that would like to invest in venture and particularly in these late stage companies. And the reason is the late stage companies are the ones that are most likely to go out on the public market soon. And then they become that kind of fairly liquid asset that you can sell at your discretion. And that is high value to people versus being locked up in a fund. So 
it's happened maybe that secondary opportunities, you know, are are negotiated on what the, what the market will bear. Got it. And do you ever see that inside some of the venture venture companies that some LPs want out for whatever reason, um, and that you're able to that that you're able to get an allocation kind of from that particular space, or not not as much? Well, yes, and and again, maybe we should. Um, explain to people that the limited partners, the LPs are the the people, the funds, the institutions that put money into the venture capital fund. And so, yes, it, it may not be that an entire fund is trying to wrap up. It's maybe past their 10 years and they're trying to wrap up. It might just be most of the limited partners in that fund are willing to sort of let it ride, let those portfolio companies, you know, keep going till they get to that major exit. But maybe one particular LP has changed their strategy and maybe they only want to be in, you know, a certain world geography or they only want to be in certain industries or uh, I don't know. There's lots of reasons they're changing their strategies. So yes, it can also happen that one investor in a fund wants to sell maybe all their positions out. And so that's an opportunity too. And, and Pegasus is unusual in that we have a higher degree of flexibility than a lot of funds to be in these unusual situations. Got it. And I asked that because prior in a separate world and physicians world world, one of our venture funds was able to buy a piece of a VC uh, LP at a discount that was very profitable for us. So, um, so I was wondering if you all were were, were doing that same thing um, for in this in this area. Yes, we we do, and we'd love to see more of those great opportunities too. Would, wouldn't we all? <laughs> and so to wrap up, just um, again, this is not a solicitation. This is just we're learning about Pegasus. So whether Pegasus is in the middle of a funding or not is not. This is not a solicitation to anyone, but so people can understand in terms of coming into the venture space as potentially as an individual, if they've sold um, their medical practice or have family money, what does a typical limited partner look like for Pegasus? Um, And from that standpoint, really kind of minimums to get in so people can have a clear understanding of what this world really looks like. Well, we are excited to help expand access to venture capital. And so this is one of the things that we are very interested with our our pre-IPO fund to um, help people get educated, help them consider whether this is an appropriate strategy for them. So we tend to, when, when it's individuals and, you know, they're not able to write a million dollar minimum check, we tend to work with groups that maybe want to pool some money um, together so that they can um, create opportunities for people to come in with a smaller allocation. But, ass- so- but, assume, but assume there's, just take the groups out of the table. Just if they're coming, if someone off the street is coming to Pegasus and, and says, I want to invest with Pegasus, what does that look like? Yeah, well, we would prefer $5 million minimum. I mean, you can imagine, as I was mentioning, the complication of the business that we run in that all of the different investors that we work with, we need to do consistent reporting with them, communication with them, let alone all the paperwork, just even to bring them into the fund and things. So, But, you know, this is actually, even that is a modest 
allocation typical to most funds. We have we have a strategy of purposely wanting to develop relationships for the long haul and to really um, help support entrepreneurial ecosystems. And the the investor component of a strong ecosystem is huge. One of the reasons that startups did so well in the United States relative to other countries for so long was because we have very strong tradition of investors. We have um, strong tradition of bringing in lots of investors into venture funds. It makes a huge difference. And, you know, as a company, we actually really advocate for building strong ecosystems around the world. This is the reason we do the Startup World Cup. We do a lot of lecturing and workshops around the world and really trying to help build the early stage investment opportunities all around the world. Because if you don't have that, the incredible talent around the world has to go to Santa Road. Silicon Valley, two places where there is capital available in order just to get going. So we're we're trying to work with as small minimums as possible just to try to um, help people get educated, help people get experienced being yep. um, supporters. No, and 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 that is very helpful and very appreciative in the world of people who've never had this kind of access before. Um, you talked about kind of a global kind of how Pegasus is global. Can you give us a sense of what countries or regions you all are operating in? Well, we started with Japanese corporations as being the first uh, corporate partners that we developed. We also have giant corporations such as ASIS in Taiwan, Kalbay in Indonesia. So Asia has been our biggest strength. We are talking to a number of corporations right now in Europe and in Latin America because we feel there's also um, tremendous opportunity there where uh, startups don't necessarily have um, easy access to um, grow into those markets without partners. And also investors there maybe don't have the same volume of deal flow and, and diversity of deal flow that we have access to. So, um, but we started with a very strong uh, strength in, in Asia. Got it. And then, um, hold on a second. And then on the pre-IPO fund side of the, of the world, is that primarily kind of U.S.-based or, or U.S. companies that are going to likely go into the um into into kind of U.S. stock exchanges. Yes, we would generally be um, focusing on companies that intend to go public in the U.S. market, unless it's in Japan. Japan has a very strong process for companies going public. There, they're actually required to be profitable, so they have maybe even stronger criteria than um, what's necessary to go public on the U.S. market. So. Um, but we're focusing on those two areas. Now, that doesn't mean that the startup company didn't originate in another country way back. It's just that they have, in more recent times, set up corporations that and structures that would enable them to go public on a U.S. or Japanese exchange. Got it. And can you, because I don't know in terms of public disclosures, can you 
give some examples on the pre-IPO side of some of the companies that you all have been a part of in terms of them going public? Well, we were already investing in companies such as 23andMe that have gone public. You know, we we have quite a number of very strong exits. We have all of all of their names on our website, which can also put in the show notes. I will. Um, so, so we've invested in DoorDash and you know many companies that have gone public. So before having this strategy, this this fund we just launched this year. Um, so, but we've been investing in companies that have had these major exits. Great. And then to wrap up, is there anything that you would like to share with the audience? Again, most of the audience are um, accredited investors. Um, they're still work work a day folks. Uh, for the most part, and many of them are new to the venture kind of ecosystem and space. Anything that we didn't cover that you just want to kind of uh, share? Well, you know, I just encourage people to um, pay attention to all the learning opportunities that are out there. I mean, we are actually often putting videos out on LinkedIn um, just to share information. I feel like we're in the last few years, especially, there have been a lot of great podcasts. I personally am a big fan of podcasts. So I think that learning as much as you can, um, and then, you know, thinking about what's appropriate for the amount of risk that you can take on startups are still risky, you know, and even public market companies are risky, but there's a particular kind of just lockup of your funds that you have to take into consideration. So, you know, get, get personal financial advice, but also just take advantage of all the free information. I find it really fun. I've, I've wanted to be involved with, as you can tell now for, you know, more than two decades, because I find it so fun, the innovation and the, the risk taking that can be so um, tremendously rewarding. So I hope people will have fun with it too. Perfect. I want to thank you. I want to thank Leah Edwards from Pegasus Tech Ventures for being with us today on the Physicians Road podcast. Uh, We'll put the show notes at thephysiciansroad.com forward slash Pegasus. And to be able to spell that is P-E-G-A-S-U-S. So thephysiciansroad.com forward slash Pegasus. Um, And that's where the show notes will live. We'll put her articles there. We'll put links to Pegasus Tech Ventures. um, And that way you you can learn Uh, more about kind of what they do and more about this very unique um, niche in the venture space. Thanks again, Leah. Thank you, Eric. It's been wonderful to talk with you. The Physician's Road is brought to you by Vernonville Asset Management. Vernonville Asset Management was created to help physicians build wealth and create income beyond Wall Street. Through our exclusive private investments, doctors can begin to free themselves from the burdensome regulations in healthcare by creating income streams independent of medicine. Go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get your free report, Wall Street's Biggest Lie. Again, go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get Wall Street's Biggest Lie and free your today. Thank you for listening to The Physician's Road, where you create your life in medicine on your own terms. Please go to thephysiciansroad.com and sign up for your free guides and resources.